went on his way through the towns and the villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen, shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open to us. He will answer, I do not know where you came from. And when you begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught us in our streets, he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And when you see Abram and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. And the people will come from the east and west and from the north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I will finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and in the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word inscripturated and the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. It is such and was such a joy to sing with your people this morning about the realities of the gospel. We praise you that you have condescended to us in Christ. Christ, you put on flesh, you came to earth, you lived a perfect life. You died a horrible death on the cross. You rose again, you ascended, and you've sent the Holy Spirit to give us new life. And we praise you this morning. God, I praise you. I am astounded and captivated afresh with your love for us. And I pray that you would do the same to your people and those who aren't yet your people. I pray you would receive uh, the preaching of your word and the receiving of your word as deep worship, that we would see you afresh and our hearts would just sing glory and praises to your holy and matchless name. I pray you'd use me to that end, and I pray it in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. Uh, If you're visiting with us this morning, my name's Chad, one of the pastors here. It's a joy to, to bring the word again to you. As you heard read, we're in Luke 13, 22 through 35. <clears throat> uh, I want to start with a, a little story, and some of you may say too soon, um, and I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm going to use it anyway. I'm here. I, it's too late to call an audible, um, and I'm smiling, but it's actually a pretty heavy story. Many of you remember the tragedy that happened this past summer with the Ocean Gate Titan submarine. Some of you remember that. You followed it pretty closely this summer. It was going to be a deep sea expedition uh, in this small submarine. Only five people were in it, and they were going to go down to the bottom of the Atlantic and see uh, the ruins of the Titanic. 
at the bottom of the ocean. On June 18th of this year, they set out to dive 13,000 feet to go see the ruins. That's 4,000 meters. But as you may remember, they lost contact with the surface 45 minutes into their dive. And it was supposed to be a a two-hour dive, so they were almost halfway into their dive. And they went missing for four days. And we were kind of all holding our breath, watching the news as this happened. And then on June 22nd, uh, some debris was found near the wreckage of the Titanic, and it was concluded to be parts of the Ocean Gate Titan submarine. Experts concluded that the submarine suffered what's known as a catastrophic implosion. I mean, the, the submarine crushed instantly as if the weight of the Eiffel Tower was on top of it. Tens of thousands of tons, and it instantly killed the five passengers on board. The human brain responds intellectually to stimulus in about 25 milliseconds. And human rational response, so from sensing to acting, is believed to be at best 150 milliseconds. And the time required for complete collapse for this catastrophic implosion to happen was one millisecond. And so as horrible as this was, um, there's a little comfort in that they didn't suffer at all. Once one millisecond, they're breathing, they're excited. The next millisecond, they didn't feel anything. They were completely crushed. On top of that, though, the air inside the sub has a fairly high concentration of hydrocarbon vapor. So immediately after a catastrophic implosion, there's an explosion. That's why they, were, they found pieces here and there. They found no remains of human bodies. Uh, They were incinerated and turned to dust and ash immediately. What a tragedy, isn't that? That was a really sad tragedy. People were really excited to just go on this touristic expedition. Their plan was that they were going to be back on the surface that afternoon. They thought they were safe. They thought they were just going to go have a, a good time in this safe Submarine, you know, people had spent millions of dollars to build this submarine. They were going to be fine. I wonder how many people in this world, and I hate to say this, I've, I've been really been feeling the weight last week and this week, you guys, just to be honest, of these, these texts of Scripture. I love God's Word. I hope you see that in me. But there's a weight to, to some texts in Scripture. I wonder how many people in this world and how many people in this room are headed towards a catastrophic implosion, thinking that they're headed toward the kingdom of God. Last week, we saw how important a relationship with God is through repentance. And that relationship can't happen apart from repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't come through religion. So this morning, the the sermon will feel very much like a part two from last week. If last week highlighted the difference between religion and repentance, this week highlights the difference between proximity and propitiation. I wrestled, should I not use this big theological word? And then I said, no. One of my principles and philosophies is teach to reach. I know a lot of you know what propitiation means. If you're a young Christian or an unbeliever in here with us this morning, I'll I'll actually explain both of those. What I mean by Proximity is this. You probably could guess. It's nearness, nearness in time or space or relationship. 
Propitiation uh, is a very Christian word, in my opinion. The only time I've ever heard it is in Christianity. And propitiate means to satisfy the wrath of God against sin or to turn away God's wrath, to offer a sacrifice that appeases God's just judgment and righteous anger against us and our sin. So what Christ did was a propitiatory sacrifice. He, he appeased the wrath of God. He turned aside the wrath of God when he died on the cross. Salvation doesn't come from being near Jesus or his people. It doesn't come from going to church and hearing God's word preached. It comes from trusting in the propitiatory sacrifice of King Jesus. Our confidence that we will not suffer catastrophic implosion should be that we trust in Christ and his work, and not just because we think we're near him in cultural ways. America is moving away from this, but we still see lots of cultural Christianity in our culture. This is what I hope you guys will hear this morning. You'll remember this week, salvation does not come through proximity to Jesus, but through trust in the propitiation of Jesus. And so our structure this morning is broken down just the way the paragraphs are in the ESV translation. First, we'll see salvation does not come through proximity, verses 22 through 30, and then salvation through propitiation, verses 31 through 35. So let's look at salvation does not come through proximity. I reminded you guys last week in these chapters, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And again, we're reminded of that in verse 22. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Most likely, based on the context we're about to see and where Jesus is, he's about to speak to a Jew. A Jewish person is about to come up to him and and ask him a question. We see that in verse 23. Someone, most likely a Jew, I would argue a Jew, comes up to him and says, Lord, will those who are saved be few? The Jewish worldview at the time was that most Jews would be saved, that their proximity to God's kingdom automatically meant membership in it, in in the eternal state, in in the new heavens and the new earth. The Mishnah was explicit about this. It says this, all Israelites have a share in the world to come, for it is written, thy people also also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. And these are they, these are they that have no share in the world to come. He that says there's no resurrection of the dead prescribed in the law, and he that says the law is not from heaven and an Epicurean. So they believed the only Jews who would not be a part of God's kingdom were those who said there's no resurrection from the dead, God didn't give us the law from heaven and an Epicurean. And Epicurus was this Greek philosopher that taught hedonism. Hedonism, you know, in contemporary language just means sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So if you, if, if you were one of those three things, you weren't going to make it to heaven if you were a Jew. But the rest of the Jews, just based on their ethnicity and proximity to the things of God, they were shoe-ins. They were guaranteed salvation. So behind the wording of the question, will, will those who are saved be few, was the assumption most Jews would be saved. But Jesus, like he does, he doesn't give an explicit answer 
And he definitely doesn't give a yes or a no answer. Instead, he says in verse 24, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. That's a pregnant verse. First, uh, probably, obviously, the narrow door is a reference to salvation. Strive to be saved and enter the kingdom of God. Strive is, is the Greek word from which we get our word agonize. So that could be confusing. Is it teaching that we earn our salvation or that we can't have assurance? We don't know if we've, we're striving hard enough. No, not at all. But it does take effort. One says grace is opposed to earning, not effort. It takes humility it takes submission. It, it takes a God-given act of the will. Uh, I thought of the scene where the guy comes up to Jesus. They say to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So strive to believe, to acknowledge God's way of salvation. And Jesus says that many people will try to enter the door of salvation and will not be able to. And so that begs the question, well, why not? And before I answer it, let's let Jesus answer it. Let's look at the parable in verses 25 through 30. He says, when the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves cast out and people will come from the east and west and from the north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Jesus, the master of the house, will someday shut the narrow door of salvation. The opportunity to be saved will be over, and there will be some outside who are saying, Lord, open to us, implying we should be in there. You made a mistake. No worries, master, but like you messed up. Just open the door. Let us in. And their expectation of the master is that he'll say, oops, my bad. You know, we've all accidentally closed the door on someone. Here you go. I'll open it. Come on in. But the, the master will answer, I don't know where you come from. I don't know you. I don't know your origin. I don't know your source. I don't know your condition. That's what that idea means. Interesting, a secondary definition was, I don't know from what author or giver you are. And then they'll offer this rebuttal. Open the door. Nope. They have a rebuttal. Like most arguments go in our homes with our kids. Right? Parents, come on. One, one answer is never enough. We have certain days that the kids are allowed to have screen time, Wednesday mornings, Saturday mornings, but they've learned when they're sick that we kind of break the rules. I mean, when you're sick, you get to watch the cartoons, you get to watch the movies. If you watch six movies that week, I don't care. You're sick. That's what we do. And so my kids have learned this. So they come up to me. You know, it's not a Wednesday morning. It's not a Saturday morning. Dad, can I watch 
a movie, a show? Can I have my tablet? I'm like, no, it's Wednesday. It's not Wednesday morning. It's not Saturday morning. But dad, I have a really bad stomach ache. I'm not feeling good. Dad, I stubbed my toe. It's really hurting. Like, I feel sick from it. No. Great, great try, good rebuttal, no. And that's what we're about to see. That They offer this rebuttal. He says, I don't know you, and the one standing outside will rebut with, but wait, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. And this time... The, the master will, will not only not give a gentler answer and offer an open door, but he will rebuke those outside and tell them, I don't know you. Depart from me, you workers of evil. Not only will they not be let in, they'll be exposed for what they are, workers of evil. Their hearts haven't been changed by the master through repentance and faith. They will be separated from the master. And Jesus says that in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Which I think every time in the Bible, when it refers to weeping and gnashing of teeth, it's a reference to hell. It's a reference to eternal separation from God. And weeping and gnashing isn't parallelism. It's not Hebrew parallelism, which means saying the same thing different ways. Weeping is what it sounds like. Crying, deep crying over sadness and despair, but gnashing of the teeth throughout the Bible is anger. It's a, it's a, hard, it's a continued hardened heart, a, a stuck in sin vitriol towards God. And what's really amazing is that many of those left outside will be ethnically Jewish people. So when Jesus says that they will see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets in the kingdom of God, but they will be left out, it's highly alarming and offensive. But that's the point. The Jews can claim all day that they're associated with the patriarchs and prophets, but that doesn't give them a passport into God's kingdom. Here's my alliterative sentence. I hope it sticks in your brain. Their proximity to patriarchs and prophets does not equal propitiation. Salvation doesn't come by being side by side with the patriarchs, with the prophets, or even with Jesus Christ. More is needed. Something that actually many Gentiles will have and many Jews will not. That's the point of verses 29 and 30. People are going to come from the east and west and north and south, recline at the kingdom of God. The first will be last, the last will be first. Even though Gentiles couldn't claim proximity to the patriarchs and the prophets in their earthly lives, they will enjoy table fellowship with them in the kingdom of God as their spiritual heirs. If you have faith in Christ, you are a child of Abraham. And many of the Gentiles, many, not all, whom the Jews thought would be last will be first, and many of the Jews who thought they themselves would be first will be last. So let me, let me zoom out and apply this to us. The Jews thought they were pretty much guaranteed a spot in God's kingdom. They thought they were pretty much guaranteed salvation because of their ethnic heritage and therefore their supposed claim on the patriarchs and the prophets, but it would prove to be fatal thinking. They needed to be in intimate relationship with the master. Nearness to him wouldn't save them. They had to trust in his propitiation. 
And in his parable, Jesus warns that someday it's going to be too late. The door will eternally close. It will be bolted shut forever and ever. And those who have not trusted in his work will suffer catastrophic implosion. So when this person asks Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Uh, His answer implies a better question for them and for us. Are you among the saved? Don't worry about how many people I'm saving. Are you one of them? Will you find yourself among them having table fellowship with Abraham and Jacob and all the prophets? He warns that there shouldn't be a lack of spiritual zeal because of their ethnicity or their heritage. So what about you? Are you among the saved? Christians, I know that you are. But are you striving to be, as we saw last week, one who bears fruit in keeping with repentance? But the question is, are you striving from salvation, not for it? We, you know, the first song we sang, I was embarrassed because it said, cease striving. And I'm like, wait, I'm about to call everyone to strive. But there's a difference. Are you striving from salvation? You've been given salvation as a free gift in Christ. And therefore, you want to run hard. You want to run the race hard. Don't think that in your striving, you're earning salvation. Or you're like repaying God. You can't repay God in a million billion years. But you strive from it. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But a saved person is a changed person. Spiritual laziness is not the result of salvation. One of my favorite verses, maybe many of us, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, listen, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, as you know, much of the call of the New Testament is to live out your salvation. Be the changed person that God has made you to be, the person that you are in Christ. Because if you're doing that, it's evidence that God is working in you. Brothers and sisters, don't be lazy. Don't give in to the flesh that says, you can give in to sin today. You don't need to strive today. It's hard work dying to yourself every day. It's hard work picking up your cross every day, fighting your sin, fighting to remove yourself from the throne in your heart. I wanted to think really hard of specific street-level heart applications for each of you in the context you find yourself. But that was kind of overwhelming this time, so I said, instead of me telling you how I think it might look for you, let me share what it looks like for me. And maybe you'll get some ideas. And I've, I've probably shared this before, so I hope you don't mind a rerun. Guys, we have a long day at work. We give a lot. We solve problems. We spend time studying. We have meetings, at least in my job, pouring out, pouring out. And I get home to a wonderful wife and three little kids. And what do I want to do? The word we say is get horizontal. And, and that, that just means lay on the couch. Just want to lay on the couch. Like, watch a screen. I don't have the Wednesday morning, Saturday morning rule. I'm a dad. <laughs> and I'm tired. And... and 
Usually the kitchen's pretty good, but sometimes I come in and the kitchen's really clean, and I'm like, I don't want to help that. The grass is really long. I don't want to go mow that. I literally, just this week, the kids were fighting, and I said, hey, Audrey, the kids are fighting. Come on, dude. Die to yourself. Pick up your cross. You're not the king of your house. You're the servant. You are the chief servant of your house. You go home and you pray when you're in the driveway, God, help me. Maybe that's all you can pray. That's all I can pray a lot of times. And you go in and you clean the kitchen and you break up the fights and you get on the floor and you wrestle and you love and you serve your wife. Another example is when when someone comes to us with what we call in Christianity an, an admonishment. Something like, hey, I love you, but I want to I I call you out on this. Audrey does it. Dan does it. Other pastors, other friends here. And what do I do? First thing, uh-uh, nope, whoa. Don't call me out. My flesh, like, I'm going to put my dukes up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, well, actually, the last three weeks, let me tell you the things that you've done to me. I've been counting. That's not dying to myself. That's not picking up my cross. That's not striving to be the person that I am in Christ. I hope you're not hearing me give you a law. You know, I love that we've been catechized. You know, I've only been here two years and I've been catechized. It's not about perfection. It's about direction. There are some days where you're not going to die to yourself at all. You're not going to pick up your cross very well at all. And you're not saved because of your performance. You're saved by trusting in the propitiation of Jesus Christ. And like I said last week, we honor God when we repent of the ways that we haven't done that, and we repent, and we, we say, help me strive. Holy Spirit, help me strive better. Christ died and rose and ascended to enable us to enter this fight, to enable us to strive. So yes, it's a paradox. We, we rest in him and his finished work, and therefore we strive. One more thing for those of you who are Christians, application just for this point. We teach here, and I believe strongly, we, uh, we teach here at WCC that if you have trusted in Christ's work on the cross, it's because God has loved you and known you from before the foundation of the world. And so you can rejoice that you, you, won't, you won't hear him say, I don't know you, friend. If you've trusted in his propitiation, you will never hear, I don't know you, depart from me. He has won you over by his love, and you can rest in that. Let me address those of you in here with us this morning who aren't Christians. First of all, you may be struggling with the idea of the narrow door, with the exclusivity of salvation through Jesus Christ. You may be like, you may believe like many, that it's arrogant to claim that our way is the only way of salvation. There's a person in my life who I love very much, who I respect very much, and this is his main frustration with Christianity. It's arrogant to claim that your way is the only way of salvation. First of all, let me say I understand that. I understand how it comes off. I know it seems arrogant I could go on and on. We could talk for a long time. The universe is built on absolute truths. Why don't we believe that with spiritual things? Two plus two is four in Japan and Australia and here. Jesus Christ is Savior here in Japan and Australia and everywhere. 
But I want to remind you that based off a text like this, that it's not really or ultimately our way, friend. I'm not saying it's my way. It's Jesus' way. It's, he's the one who teaches throughout the scriptures that he is the only way to salvation. We Christians, we're just little parrots. We're going around saying everything that King Jesus says. It's not my way. It's not your way or your way. It's King Jesus' way. He says he's the only way to salvation. And he's my king. And I believe he's right. Another thing to note is, as we just saw, the narrow way is actually offered to everyone. The narrow way is for everybody. It's for the world. Friend, it's for you if you're not a Christian. Christ is offered to you, even right now. It's for everybody. It doesn't matter your background, where you're from, Jew or Gentile, whoever you are. One says it like this. But here's the ultimate beauty. The narrowness of the kingdom has created a kingdom that is broader than we would have ever thought. This is because the narrow way is spiritual and not hereditary. Because it is a relationship with God that comes by faith. Because it makes men and women new from the inside out. And because it is all by grace. So friend, through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, you too can have a seat in the kingdom of God. Let me address one more group. I know there's lots of application here. I'm not realizing that until just now. This one's, um, I picture me 20 years ago sitting out here, okay? There are many of you in this room right now who, like the Jews in the passage, thought that proximity to God's people automatically meant a passport in the kingdom. That wasn't the case, and it still isn't. Just because your parents are Christians, you come to church you take communion, you hear the teachings of Jesus Christ, you're in fellowship with God's people, those are good things, but that doesn't mean you're in the kingdom of God. I say this to the kids again, you come to church with your parents, this was me, I thought I was a Christian because mom and dad were Christians. I had never repented of my sins personally and believed in the death of Jesus Christ for myself. You must Trust in Christ and his death on your behalf. You must have relationship with him through ongoing repentance and faith. You need to have that and continue to come to church and read the Bible and and take communion and study the Bible and pray. So Jesus urges his audience and us to enter through the narrow door. And he would open that narrow door through the wide city of Jerusalem. We'll see this in our second point, salvation through propitiation, verses 31 through 35. So as Jesus is headed to Jerusalem, we see in verse 31, at that very hour, some Pharisees came to him and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. There was lots of talk this past week at community group. Are these Pharisees good guys or bad guys? I mean, it seems like like one argument could be they're good guys. They're trying to help Jesus. Or they're bad guys, and, and I believe they're bad guys because that's what we see in most of the scriptures. There's a few exceptions to Pharisees being good guys, but I'm not going to go there too much because here's the deal, you guys. It doesn't really matter whether they're good or they're bad. If they're good trying to get him not to go to Jerusalem, or they're bad and they're trying to not to get him to go to Jerusalem, where is he going? Where has he set his face? Where does his mission climax? In Jerusalem. So he's not 
changing his path because of the fear of man. He's on an unstoppable mission. So they say, get away, Herod wants to kill you. And he says, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jesus, in his role as prophet, isn't afraid to call out the governor of Galilee. Call him a name, actually. He calls him a fox. That was common parlance in Hebrew for a person with base cunning, and it was used to designate someone as insignificant and worthless. He tells the Pharisees, go tell baseless, cunning, insignificant, worthless Herod that I'm going to continue my ministry. I am going to Jerusalem. I will keep casting out demons and healing people. And Jesus, foreshadowing his death and resurrection on the third day, he says, I will finish my course. And he would. The earthly finish line was in Jerusalem. One says, Jesus said, in essence, Jerusalem has the monopoly on killing the prophets, and on this highest occasion, the city will not be deprived. It would never do for a prophet to perish except in Jerusalem. He was headed to Jerusalem to die. He knew what he was doing, and not only that, he was sovereign over the evil that would happen to him. It was his plan before the foundation of the world. He was in control of his life and his death. What man meant for evil, he meant for good. He says in John 10, 18, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. He was going to pay for the sins of his people. Nothing would stop him. And yet he still mourns over Israel and those in Jerusalem who wouldn't receive him. He laments at their hardness of hearts. He says in verse 34, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Most in Jerusalem especially the religious leaders, as I said last week, had not entered through the narrow door of salvation. They were on the wide path to destruction. And yes, God is sovereign in salvation, but mankind is responsible for their sin. Jerusalem was responsible for her sin and not turning to Christ as Savior. And Jesus affirms his deity by referring to himself as the one who who would have sheltered Israel under his wings. An act is described throughout the Old Testament in the Psalms only of something that Yahweh does for his people, sheltering them under his wings. And Jesus prophetically warns, as he did in the parable of the barren fig tree, that Jerusalem would be judged and abandoned by God. He says, Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus' presence in Jerusalem would be the last time the presence of God was in the temple. And Jerusalem, as I said last week, would be destroyed. The temple would be completely destroyed in 70 AD. 
And until Israel could say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they would be under the judgment of God. And so it is with us. Unless we can say at his return, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we are under his judgment. Let me address you guys again. If you're, if you're not a Christian in here, I want to point you to this from this paragraph. Jesus' death outside of Jerusalem, his propitiation is a historical event. Corroborated by the eyewitnesses of Scripture. This book was written in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They never found his body. Myriads of books would have been written if they found his body. Christianity is nothing apart from the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, which happened in history. You can have every other worldview, every other world religion apart from its figurehead. You have nothing in Christianity apart from Jesus Christ and his death that happened on a hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. I offer Christ to you again. It actually happened. He actually bore the wrath of God, and if you believe that, you will be saved. Christians, hallelujah. Praise God. He turned the rejection of Israel and the death of Jesus into the greatest act of love the world has ever known. Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem. Nothing would stop him. No power of hell, no scheme of man would stop my king from doing what he set out to do. I was overcome, and I am again overcome, at the love and the human bravery of our king. Yes, he's God, but yes, he was human. This picture came to me yesterday. Imagine you're on death row. And imagine they've placed the date of your death a year from now, 365 days. And imagine they put you in a cell with a window. And the only thing you can see out that window is a gallows where they're going to hang you by your neck until you die. And they place that gallows 365 yards away. And every day for a year, they move the gallows one yard closer. Imagine the terror. I don't know anyone who wouldn't go absolutely crazy at the fear and the weight. The shadow of that gallows would hang over you even on the cloudiest of days. And that illustration breaks down because the cross wasn't brought near to Jesus, but he walked to it and he embraced it for me and for you. The relentless and overwhelming terror of the cross loomed daily over him. Higher and brighter, deeper and darker, but his love for us drove him on. And his desire to glorify God by purchasing us as a bride for him drove him on. He did open the narrow door. And he saved us. And he irresistibly won us for himself. That salvation comes through his sacrifice and by him placing us in him, not just by being near him, but by being in him. Now my debt is paid. 
It is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me, whom the Son sets free. Oh, is free indeed. Let's pray. Father, as one said, I pray that you'd protect us from lethargic apprehensions of the uproarious joy of divine pardoning. We see Christ fresh this morning. We praise you for his work on our behalf. Lord, we acknowledge that when we take our eyes off of King Jesus and the work you've done for us through him, that we become comfort-loving, pride-displaying kings and queens on the throne of our lives. But as we look at King Jesus and his love for us, his propitiatory sacrifice, we can't help but bow our knees in worship and praise you for granting us the way of salvation, the narrow door of salvation. We give you all of our praise, and we pray in the name of King Jesus. Amen.